listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Welcome to part two of my special episodes on year one of Life After Loss, Sky's story. Um, If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, then in that episode, I talk about Sky's journey, about my pregnancy, finding out she died, the in-between time and her birth. And this second part of the episode picks up after that. So in parts four to seven of this monster long episode, if you're still listening, I talk about grief and depression, the impact of loss on friendships and relationships, Sky's legacy, and finish with my letter to myself, um, a letter that I wrote for the person I was a year ago about this first year. So I hope you find it interesting. Uh, I feel a bit like it's, um, I've just been rambling on about various thoughts on grief and loss and relationships and things. So I really have no idea whether it's useful or not, but I hope you enjoy listening to it and you find it helpful. Part four, grief and depression. For the first few weeks after your child dies, you exist in this kind of bubble. I guess it's that kind of crisis phase when everything's a bit numb and you just get on with doing all those things you have to do registering a a birth and a death or a stillbirth perhaps, planning a funeral, receiving cards, flowers, answering all the many of messages you get from people, which can kind of be overwhelming sometimes, rearranging work and holiday plans. We had, had a holiday booked. We hadn't actually booked anywhere we were going away for two weeks in our camper van up to Scotland um, the week end after Sky died and while we didn't go that weekend because there were too many things to sort out I had midwife's appointments and those type of things we did end up sort of postponing it and changing our plans slightly to get away for about 10 days, I think it was. And that was really helpful, I think. I think both of us just needed to escape from the world for a time, escape from the house, and have some time out in the mountains and fresh air that we love. And also around that time, oh gosh, it was just one of those kind of you know, everything kind of hits you at once in life. (laughs) And I guess in some ways that's good because you get all the bad crappy stuff out the way rather than it lingering on. But yeah, it was, it was a pretty terrible few weeks. So the day before we found out that Skye had died, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And actually the day after we found out she died, um, a good friend of theirs uh, who'd had dementia for a while passed away. And then a couple of weeks after Sky died, while we were up in Scotland, my last remaining grandparent, my granny, passed away at the grand old age of 99, just a few weeks before her 100th birthday. And so, yeah, I guess looking back, I was hit by quite a lot all around that same time and yeah there was definitely there was a lot of grief but there was also some kind of numbness going on I mean 
gosh, I went to two funerals in the space of, I think, 10 days. We had Sky's funeral and then my grandmother's funeral. And that was really, really hard. Um, I remember my dad had asked me to read this poem at my grand's funeral and it was a poem that I'd chosen um, and I'd chosen it because it was beautiful and because it made me cry but obviously when you're standing up in a crematorium in front of people that kind of makes it a little bit a little bit difficult to get the words out and although you know I spoke at my other grandmother's funeral and I'm usually fairly good at public speaking on that occasion I did have to get my husband to stand in and say the last few lines when I just wasn't able to but hey it was a team effort so I feel like there's definitely this bubble of time where you're you're allowed to grieve I guess and the world gives you permission to grieve because of this terrible awful thing that's happened to you but at some point you have to come out of that bubble And coming out of it is almost harder than being in it because that's the point at which you feel like you should be, in inverted commas, getting back to normal. And in the eyes of the world, perhaps, you should be getting back to normal. You shouldn't be staying in bed all day. You know, perhaps you should be thinking about what happens next, thinking about moving on. And I don't, I do wonder if, Perhaps this is different depending on the stage of your loss. And, you know, Sky was not a full-term baby. And I do wonder if, you know, or I did wonder at the time that if your baby is born at full-term, then perhaps you're given a bit more leeway to grieve for longer. But I was very fortunate in that because Sky was born after 24 weeks, I was entitled to some maternity pay. And, you know, there have been so many times over the last year when I've been so grateful to be living in the UK as opposed to somewhere like America, where you just don't get the same benefits. And also, I've spoken to people, you know, and I know people whose babies died shortly before that 24 week point. And you know, aside from the heartbreak of not having that kind of official stillbirth certificate and having it officially classed as a late miscarriage, you know, there's also the practical implications of, um, you know, of what you're entitled to. But at the same time, I am self-employed and self-employment isn't like another job. You know, I felt that I should try to keep on some clients, even if I wasn't looking for new ones. Hell, the week Sky died, I had articles booked in. And I mean, I don't even know why I thought this was, you know, I had to do this. But, you know, I'm an obliger. I always feel like I I have to deliver things. And the day after we came home from hospital, I was sat down at my computer trying to force myself to write an article on god I can't remember what it was now um for something that you know I said I would deliver to a client um so that that was hard you know if you if you stop working for a time then your clients look elsewhere and they look for other people and you know that work doesn't necessarily come back and I also felt that uh, again, in inverted commas, I should use the opportunity that this time gave me to do some of the work that I don't get paid for. And that for me, that's, you know, that's writing my fiction books. And equally, I was also determined to use the time off that I had to rethink what I wanted from my work and my career, because I didn't want to go back to the place I was in before Sky's death. Which, if you're listening to this, you're probably having a bit of a giggle and you're like, what was this stupid woman thinking? (laughs) That actually, you know, there was this whole grief stuff going on and she's just going to do all the things um, while trying to come to terms with her daughter's death. And yeah, it probably was maybe a little bit over ambitious and clearly things didn't pan out at all like that 
But I think that certainly my work situation did impact quite a lot on my grief. And I think it was perhaps the biggest factor in tipping from grief into depression because I, whether rightly or wrongly, I did feel this constant pressure that I should be doing some kind of work and doing something with my time and that I was, otherwise I would, you know, be throwing what I worked for essentially down the drain. And there have been so many times over the past year when I wished i just wished I had a regular job to go to, that I could get out of the house, commute to an office, and for that eight hours, I could put on a mask and pretend to be someone different, pretend to be the person I was before. Because working at home is hard when there are so many emotions lingering in every room, and you have to try and switch off from, you know, this person who is grieving to this person who needs to sit down and think (laughs) and do some work. And for me, it's a lot harder to do that when you are essentially in the same place. I mean, I have an office at home, so, you know, I can go to a different room, but, you know, you're still, you're still in that same location. And at the same time, as a bit of a workaholic, I've always found it hard to stop working at the end of the day, particularly when I haven't finished the things I wanted to get done. There's always this feeling that you should do more. So while I am very, very aware that things always seem greener from the other side, and, you know, I'm hugely grateful for the positive sides to self-employment, there were a lot of times when I felt like that separation between work and home and having that, I guess, that time to grieve, but also the time to be a normal for want of a better word, person again, would have helped me a lot in my kind of grief journey. I also had, as I kind of probably touched on in the last episode, a lot of negative emotions and feelings of failure around my work. And I think subconsciously and perhaps consciously, I blamed it in part for Sky's death. Um... And it's difficult because I'm a writer and, you know, a lot of people suggested, well, you know, why don't you write? Writing might help you. And, you know, a lot of books say that and a lot of people say that they found that either journaling or some form of creative writing has helped kind of channel those feelings and help them get them out onto paper and understand them. And maybe that does work for some people. But for me, the words just didn't come. I couldn't write. I didn't want to write. And that made me feel just even more of a failure. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we talk about grief, but grief isn't just one emotion. It's many. There's sadness, but also envy, shame, guilt, anger. And boy, I know a lot. (laughs) I know a lot about anger. I think, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure like people who've met me probably wouldn't uh, necessarily pick this up. But I I am a very angry person. (laughs) I have a lot of anger inside me and I find it quite difficult to deal with. And I think part of that is because we are taught from such a young age that anger is a negative emotion that we should suppress, that, you know, good boys and girls aren't angry. So I do try to suppress it. And what I find is that when you do that, it it literally burns you up. You know, I get literally a burning feeling in my chest and throat. And, you know, I just want to destroy something. And there was one thing, and I'm going to mention this because I think it's an awesome idea, even though I have personally, I've never done it probably because I've been too lazy to actually get things in to do it. But um, And I can't remember if it's something I read or heard on a podcast um, about a lady describing how she dealt with her anger, particularly those really intense periods. And she said she bought a load of plates from a charity shop. And when she was feeling really angry, she went out into the garden and she smashed them. She threw them around. She 
you know, did all those things you blooming want to do? Because when you're angry, you know, it's all very well saying, oh, well, just sit calmly, let the feelings come, or, you know, as my therapist said, put your fingers in some ice. But really, what you want to do is break things, right? (laughs) So she would break these plates and smash them. And then she would pick up the pieces. And while she was picking up those pieces, that kind of gave her, I guess, the chance. You'd had that initial release of anger and to perhaps calm down a bit again. And I think what she actually did was she then made mosaics out of those pieces of pottery um so it ended up being creating you know that anger ended up being channeled into something beautiful so I don't know if that helps anyone but I really love it as an idea and then there is the numbness of grief the not feeling anything lying on the sofa not even having the energy to read a book and for the first time I think in my life I had days where I didn't want to go outside You know, I am a very outdoors person. The outdoors is my happy place. If I'm feeling miserable or down, I go for a walk. You know, I escape to the mountains and the sea and the coast to help me feel better. And, you know, a lot of the time it does. But I didn't want I didn't want to go for a walk. I didn't want to drag myself off the sofa. My usual creative outlets weren't open to me again, you know, Aside for writing aside, you know, I like trying my hand at different crafty things. And, you know, again, a few people suggested that to me. Well, why don't, you know, why don't you just try something creative? And I couldn't bring myself to do anything. And then afterwards, you get the guilt for not having done anything, for literally having wasted, (laughs) in inverted commas, a whole day. And, you know, I guess if if you're at this stage now and you're feeling like this, there's nothing... I mean, if you're like me, you know, as much as I can say it's just part of grief and you have to get through it and just accept that you are going to have days when you don't want to do anything and you can't do anything. And that is totally okay. And I do believe that. I also know that when I was in that time, it's really hard to accept that and to accept that 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 is what's happening. And I think there's a very fine line between grief and depression um I mean the symptoms are the same it's it's hard to know I mean I'm not sure there is a definition but I feel like at some point in perhaps August I think the beginning of August last year I slipped over that line I was seeing a therapist at the time but I was finding it wasn't really helping me and if anything reliving what had happened with Sky was just making things worse And really nothing seemed to help. I felt so isolated and alone, which I'll talk about a bit more in the next segment. I am lucky to have the most wonderful, amazing husband. And honestly, if it weren't for him, I'm not sure how I would have got through that time. And I still remember my my lowest point. And, you know, it was just one of those days where you wake up and, you know, it's going to be a bad day. And I checked the messages on my phone, desperate for some positivity, some words of comfort and hope. And instead, I found something that just triggered those kind of darkest of all emotions that were inside me. And I remember my husband had gone to work and I just lay on the floor crying and eventually I clawed my way onto the sofa and lay there I literally my face was planted flat on the sofa cushion because I didn't even have the strength to lift it onto a pillow I just felt so incredibly heavy um like I just couldn't even lift a limb to do anything and I remember thinking that, you know, I can't go on like this. This is this is not life. But somehow I did go on. And more weeks passed. And we reached Sky's due date, which was a big milestone. I think, you know, for me, this was about three months after her birth. So it was, you know, after the funeral, it was that next big milestone in my kind of grief journey. And 
it's hard to know what to do for that occasion. And I think it's very, you know, individual and, you know, depends on you and your circumstances. We had decided to have Kratz Sky cremated. And I think that we always knew that we wanted to scatter her ashes on the Isle of Skye in Scotland, for which she's named, and which is very close to our hearts. And I think I had this idea in my head that we would do that on her due date. And it would be it would be a good, I guess, maybe celebration, maybe letting go a symbolic moment to move on, perhaps, with life. And as it grew closer, as the date grew closer, I found myself feeling quite reluctant to do that and quite reluctant to let her go. Um, Almost as if, you know, scattering those ashes was losing a part of her. And I did keep back a small portion of the ashes, which I now have in a necklace, a gemstone necklace we had made with her birthstone. So I do have part of her still. So we did, we went up to Scotland in our camper van for, I think, five days. And, you know, it wasn't the greatest of weather. It was pretty wet, but we made the best of it. We had a few days out walking and spending time outdoors. And then the the morning of her due date came and we walked up to the spot we'd chosen, which is it's a beautiful spot. It's the top of a ruined castle uh, right next to the sea, it kind of sticks out on a promontory and you look over from the sea to the Kulin Mountains. So it's a really, a really lovely, amazing spot. And I still, you know, I wasn't sure if I could let her go. And it was a really still calm morning. And I was like, we have to wait. We have to wait for a breeze because she needs to be carried away. She can't, you know, I'm not going to just dump her ashes on this <laughs> bit of ground and rock. And anyway, we did, yeah, we did scatter our ashes. And I mean, I think it's hard because I think you're always going to be in two minds about these things. But I do think it was the right decision. And after that date, actually, I found that my kind of grief and depression took a bit of a nosedive. I think mentally, you know, after we lost her, I'd given myself those three months to fix myself (laughs) again, because of course you can be fixed (laughs) as if grief was an illness. Um, But I think I still thought that, you know, after we'd done this, after this milestone, I'd be able to get back to normal. And then when I couldn't, when I was finding it, you know, just as hard to concentrate, just as hard to do anything, I just felt even worse, I think. I felt, well, how, how on earth am I supposed to function as a human being again and rebuild my life if, you know, if I can't do this now? But I did have a turning point of sorts a couple of weeks later. I remember when I was talking to my podcast guest, Emma, about her grief after her daughter Amelia died. And she said she had this crossroads moment that she, well, she literally, I think, sort of felt like she was at this crossroads where she can either carry on in this world of grief or she can choose to be happy. And she chose happiness. And while my crossroads moment wasn't that strong or sudden, there were a few things that happened over the course of a couple of days at the end of September last year that did help me wrestle back some control. And I think partly the first thing was my sister-in-law came to visit and I was able to talk to her about Sky and some of what I felt. And that, as I'll go on to in the next segment, that was only the second time, really, I'd had someone other than my husband to do that with. I then went to the Baby Loss Hour event in Leeds, which um, which was amazing. Um, because for the first time, I felt myself surrounded by other people like me, people whose babies had died and who were still living <laughs> years later and had managed to, you know, pick up their lives and were carrying on while holding that grief. And that gave me a lot of hope. And then the following Monday, I was speaking at a panel, on a panel at a conference, which was an event I'd been incredibly nervous about because 
it was first thing in the morning. And my experience the last few weeks was that my brain literally did not switch on until about half past 11 in the morning. Like before that, it was a fog. Everything was a fog. And I was like, how am I supposed to sit in front of these people and talk about writing and editing and and all these things when I can't think? But the event went well, which I think again was a boost, a boost to my confidence. And then on the train home, I read a book that really revolutionized how I thought about my work and gave me hope that perhaps there was a different way of going about things which would play to my strengths. And that did help me keep going. And things didn't miraculously get better after that. I remember we went on holiday for two weeks. And even on holiday, I couldn't feel happy. I don't think I had a single moment on that holiday when I felt happy. And you know, I'm not sure grief ever really goes away. You know, I had low days and bad days. I still have low days and bad days. But I was, after that point, perhaps a bit more forgiving of myself. And I had that hope that things would get better. And one year in, there are still days when the grief hits hard. But there's time between those waves of grief when the feelings are not so intense. I'm better able to realise when I need to be sad. And when I feel angry, I try to figure out why I feel angry and hurt and whether that's because of grief or sadness or for some other reason. And honestly, you know, we're coming up to Sky's birthday now. And yesterday, yesterday was a bad day. Um, It was a good day and an amazing day in some ways. But I felt more overwhelmed and heartbroken than I have since really the earliest days of my grief but not every day is like that and I know not every day is like that and I think what grief has really taught me is that feelings are for feeling it's okay to feel emotion it's okay to cry it's even okay to be angry it's okay to laugh when you think you should be sad And it's okay to cry at kids' movies. And Frozen 2, I'm looking at you. (laughs) I do feel a bit like I've become a never-ending tear machine over the past year. Uh, But rather than bottle them up, I do try to let them flow. And sometimes, you know, just can't help it. When I'm reading a book, I cry as much as the happy ending as at the death of the protagonist's best friend. A piece of poignant music can make me cry. A film about overcoming adversity will always make me cry. And that just seems to be my way, I think. I cry because life is sad, but also because it's so very beautiful. And I think that might be true for other people. Because when I've spoken to bereaved parents for this podcast, the moments when they tear up and when emotion chokes their words are the moments when they talk about how perfect their baby was and how much they love their child. In the year that's passed, I've sometimes found myself not wanting to think about Sky because I didn't want to deal with the sadness. If I was feeling productive or happy, I didn't want that mood to be shattered. I wanted to carry on like that. So I'd often bottle up that sadness And it's a bit like shaking a bottle of Coke, you know, you keep bottling it up and the pressure increases and the pressure increases until finally it does explode out. And again, I think that part of that and part of that bottling up was because I was still clinging to the notion that in some way grief was bad, that it's something that we just don't talk about or or do in public which is a shame because while grief is anger, jealousy, sadness, and all those all those horrible emotions that it's so hard to feel, it's also memories, it's compassion, and it's love. I remember a friend of mine telling me shortly after Sky died that there's no grief without love. And slowly, I've realized that grief isn't necessarily something to move on from or leave behind. And yes, we can't carry on in those darkest days forever when it's so constant and overwhelming, but that doesn't mean we have to let grief go or that we will let grief go. While we love someone who's no longer with us, we will always grieve for them. 
And I think when you look at it that way, grief is actually a really beautiful thing. Part five, the impact of loss on friendships and relationships. I have heard many terrible stories about insensitive or downright malicious comments that people have had from friends and families in the aftermath of losing their children. And I feel incredibly lucky that for the most part, I haven't experienced that. Um, I obviously have good choice in friends. (laughs) And, you know, we can't always choose our families. Um, And, you know, I'm very lucky in both my family and my in-laws as well. But grief and loss, perhaps particularly baby loss, really is lonely and isolating. And I think in terms of the impact of losing Sky on my friendships and relationships, I think that has been the main thing that I've struggled with. I have a lot of friends, but I don't have a sort of a best friend as such or anyone that lives particularly close. My friends are spread out across the country. Geographically, I'm quite a long way from a lot of them. And I'm the sort of person who much prefers to sit down and talk to someone in person or, you know, go for a walk and have a good in-depth conversation rather than talking over the phone. And so while I've had many messages of support and love as you do when these things happen, I had no one to really talk to. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I think people don't really want to make that first move to talk to you about this kind of thing. They just say, oh, I'm here if you want to chat. But you're never, you know, as we know, you're never going to be the one to make that first move. And in particular, you know, I often find it quite hard to reach out and ask for help. If you've listened to the previous part of this episode, then you'll probably know that there are or realise that there are parts about my experience with birthing Sky and the aftermath that I still find it incredibly hard to talk about. But there are parts that I really did want to talk about. I desperately wanted people to acknowledge her, to recognise that I'd been pregnant and had given birth rather than skirting around the subject in awkward conversations that, you know, didn't really seem to go anywhere. I'm kind of, I guess, an older mum and most of my friends have kids. And in a strange way, when I was pregnant with Skye, I finally felt part of a club within a lot of my friendship groups. I'm kind of, I guess, the last person in the group to to have kids. And for a few years, I've been the only one who hasn't had kids. And I guess finally, I felt like I was belonging properly to that group. You know, I was going to be part of the mother's club. I was part of those parenting jokes you get, you know, just wait for those sleepless nights or make the most of it now. You won't have this when baby arrives. You know, this is how you change a nappy when you have a baby boy so he doesn't pee all over you. And all those kind of conversations which you can have and finally be part of. And when Sky died, I didn't just lose her. I lost that. It was like overnight I was kicked out of that club though no one, you know, specifically made me feel that way. I just felt like that outsider at the playground who no one wants to play with. And you know what? I had been through labour and I'd given birth. The trouble was I had nothing to show for it. You know, no one said to me, well done for going through that. It's bloody tough, isn't it? I didn't get to do the birth announcements show that first family photo or photo of mother and baby, receive those messages of congratulations from people or messages saying how beautiful my baby was. No one asked me about my birth experience. I had no shared stories or commiserations of what went well or what didn't well. And so I wasn't able to feel any sense of pride about what I had done and what I had achieved. 
I mean, it's no small thing giving birth to any baby, let alone a dead baby. (laughs) You know, you still go through the same process or perhaps a different process because I've been induced and not had a natural birth. And, you know, perhaps that was a conversation I could have had with some of my friends comparing those differences. But it felt like that cliche in performance coaching, you know, so there's this cliche that you should focus on the process and not the end result. And yet, this was all about the end result. I hadn't delivered a living, breathing, healthy baby. So everything that had gone on before that, the positive and the negative, was washed away as if it had never even happened. And conversations... Conversations require two people or more people. They require give and take. And I know that many of my guests have spoken about the fact that friends and families didn't broach the subject of their baby with them. And some of them felt they had to make it clear to people that they were happy to talk about their baby and their experience. And I guess to some extent, you do have to do that. But I do feel that that comes easier to some people than others. And I'm not the sort of person who walks into a room and is immediately the the focus of attention or is confident enough to say what they think, even if the room freezes around them. I don't like making others feel uncomfortable. Um, At the end of the day, I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I I want people to talk about what they feel comfortable talking about. So my forays into talking about Sky with other people were perhaps more gentle nudges than flaming swords, (laughs) to use a nice fantasy metaphor there. I did drop into conversations, mentions of her, things about perhaps when I was pregnant with her or, you know, even aspects of my birth and what happened. But perhaps my hints were too subtle as they were never really picked up. And slowly I stopped even doing that. I turned around the conversation to talk about their children or mutual friends or that great British topic of the weather. (laughs) And actually for a long time, I felt like I'd lost the ability to have a conversation with someone. I was frightened that it might never come back and that I'd always be this socially awkward hermit (laughs) who could never do small talk at the very least. And I think it was only when I learned to let go of the expectation that I should be able to talk about my experiences and how I felt that I was able to speak normally to my friends again. I know some people find this through counselling or therapy if they can't find it through friendship. And I was seeing a therapist at the time, but for me, I needed the two-way communication of a conversation. It wasn't enough just to spill my guts to a stranger. I needed to converse about it, not just talk about it. And, you know, again, I will admit that I probably didn't make it easy. You know, for one thing, I found it even more difficult to talk about work and my books, which is, you know, the second obvious topic of conversation after the taboo of the dead baby. And I guess with those two things off the table in people's eyes, what do you talk about? I don't know, the weather. (laughs) But honestly, for so many months, I felt like I was locked behind a door, screaming that I wanted to talk about my daughter, but that through the thickness of that door, no one could actually hear me. And it was perhaps, I think, only about three months after Sky died that I was finally able to have a proper conversation with someone other than my husband about what had happened. A very good friend of mine um, who lives in London came up to stay with us for the weekend. And she, over the course of that weekend, she gently opened that door that I'd been beating my fists against for so many months and listened. And we talked, and not just about me, we talked about her. And, you know, she had some rough stuff going on in her life at the time. And in some ways, that kind of made it easier because we could share stories and share experiences and talk about how we were feeling. And I remember after that weekend feeling such a sense of release and relief, like I'd had all this stuff tight inside me that 
finally, I was able to let out a bit. And again, a month later, I felt something similar, perhaps when I had a long conversation with my sister-in-law about, again, some kind of mutual struggles that we were going through. And for me, it's having those, you know, those close one-on-one conversations. That is what I prefer generally, rather than, you know, a big group conversation. But it felt like they were so few and far between during those kind of initial months and perhaps even now. And I think perhaps if you're listening to this and if you're someone who's maybe trying to support a bereaved parent in those early days of of grief and loss, I think that it's perhaps the greatest gift that you can give to someone to be the person to open that door, to ask the questions that I know you feel uncomfortable asking and to listen to their story and talk about their baby with them. Because at the end of the day, you know, we still went through part of that parenting journey. And perhaps the most painful thing about losing a child is realising that the world forgets about that and that people forget about that and that their memory of your experience and your child fades from their minds over time. I also wanted to talk a bit about coronavirus in this segment as for me some of those feelings of isolation and exclusion that I felt during those early months have really come back over the past few months while we've been in lockdown. One thing that I think many people struggle with after losing a child is being around other children, events such as christenings, other babies being born. And that hasn't really been such a huge problem for me that I found. I have quite enjoyed being around other children. I have struggled with other babies being born. I think that is only natural. And I think I struggle perhaps with parents of younger or being around younger children rather than slightly older children. But generally i've i've been okay but the thing that's really hit me and that i've struggled with is parenting complaints and that's not because i'm unaware or unsympathetic to how hard parenting is i have enough friends with kids that i really don't have any rose tinted views on that score i know that you know being the parent of living children is incredibly hard a lot of the time it doesn't feel rewarding at all and you know, for the most part, I can be sympathetic to that. And while in many ways lockdown didn't affect my life that much, I was still able to work, exercise locally. Like everyone, I miss seeing friends and family, missed hugs, missed the holidays we were planning to go on and the other events and outings we planned. But the parenting complaints, wow. I mean, I really do get that it's been tough for parents And naturally, my friends have, you know, needed and wanted to share their experiences and lean on each other for support. I totally get that. But what it's meant is that many of my group conversations amongst my friendship groups and my social media feeds have been a constant onslaught of homeschooling complaints, shared memes, or supportive quotes about how you'll get through this and how together we will survive this and get through lockdown. And it's an ever constant reminder that in the eyes of the world, I'm not a mother. I'm not trying to juggle homeworking with parenting a baby. I'm not worried about the impact of isolation on my child. It's an ever constant reminder that I'm on the outside of this group looking in. And as everyone who's part of these friendship groups or, you know, is on social media and who is also a parent immediately jumps in with hugs, sympathetic emojis, commiserations, promises that it'll be better once they turn four or five, I once again feel left out. And I guess that leaves me with a choice. Do I carry on in these conversations, being as supportive as I can and accept the pain that that brings? Or do I exit the conversation and isolate myself even further? And what I've found I've ended up doing is a bit of a mix of both. Most of the time I 
kind of look on the edges. I try and be as sympathetic as I can be. But sometimes on days when I'm feeling particularly fragile, I have to take myself away from these groups of social media and just try to be grateful for what I do have and the many blessings I do have in my life. I'm sure this sounds to many of you like a very small and petty thing, and perhaps it is. But for me, it's added an extra layer to my experience of grief and isolation. I don't think any of us like feeling like an outsider. And while I'm sure many of my friends envy the life I have now, envy what they see as my days of work and fun activities, my long nights of sleep, because the grass is always greener, right? But it would be nice, just occasionally, if people asked how we, the bereaved parents, the parents who, in the eyes of the world, are perhaps not real parents, are coping with lockdown, that they would appreciate that we have many sleepless nights too, even if we don't moan about them, that we grieve for the fact that we can't spend time with our children, whether that's going to a graveside or another special place, that we grieve what lockdown could have been like for us if our children had lived, and that we would give anything to have had one day with our child let alone seven weeks. That probably makes me sound like a really bad friend. (laughs) I told you this podcast was going to be awkward. Anyway, (laughs) what is said is said. And, you know, I have given sympathy in bucket loads over the past few months and even longer than that in cases. And, you know, for the most part, that's been genuinely and freely given. i want people to happy you know it makes me happy when other people are happy and I really don't like to see people struggling particularly when they're people I love but just sometimes it would be nice to feel like people were able to see past the chaos and difficulties of their own lives and appreciate that everyone is facing their own challenges at this time even if they might not be quite so visible and I don't just mean myself in that You know, there are lots of other people who've been struggling through lockdown, people who live on their own, who rely on going out to see friends and haven't been able to do that, who are so isolated because however many Zoom conversations and video chats you have, it's not the same as actually being able to see someone in person. People who've suffered a loss or bereavement um, during this period, who've, you know, not been able to have the funerals or support they wanted. You know, there are lots of different reasons why people are struggling. People have lost businesses, livelihoods. There's a lot of grief around that too. So, yeah, I think it's just about appreciating that everyone everyone has their own challenges and things they're struggling with right now. But I want to finish this segment on a more positive note. Because, yeah, I don't want everything to be negative about this podcast. And it does feel like I have basically moaned at you for quite a long time now. So I want to move on to something more positive, and that's the new friendships that I have made over this past year. Other members of this club that none of us really wanted to join, people who understand all the crazy things grief and baby loss does to you, people I can talk about Sky with and talk about their children, and yes, people who I can moan to about those feelings of envy jealousy and anger without them thinking that I'm some terrible psychotic person (laughs) so I don't know perhaps I am part of a club after all it's a smaller more exclusive club and it's not one I ever thought I'd end up in but it has been incredibly comforting to have a few friends both in the baby loss community and outside it who aren't afraid to shy away from difficult conversations or feelings who understand what you're feeling and can empathise with you. And I will always be grateful to those people for making my world just a little bit brighter. Part 6. Sky's Legacy I mentioned in the first part of this episode that... When Sky was born and sort of around that time, I looked to other people to tell me what to do. And that's, I guess that's always been part of what I do. And it wasn't really any different in the days and weeks following her death. I looked to others to tell me how I should feel, what happened next. Was I just supposed to move on with my life? 
And I searched for people who'd been through this to help me figure out what came next, as I'm sure many of you have also done. I found some information in books. Later, I found some examples and friends on Instagram. But also in those first few weeks, I searched for podcasts, podcasts about baby loss, about people who'd lost their children to understand and feel a bit less alone in my experience. And I found very little. I found parenting podcasts. I found a few on grief that had the occasional episode that was specific to baby loss. But I couldn't find anything current that really, I guess, addressed this subject or had more than a few interviews and discussions on the topic. And I started thinking or wondering about why that was. And I think there are a couple of reasons. I think firstly, it's a hard subject to talk about. It's perhaps hard to get people to share their stories or to want to reach out to people to do that because it's a difficult topic to talk about. And it's also a really hard topic to listen to. And I've done a bit of podcasting before. I have quite a few friends who podcast. And most podcasts are done either for entertainment purposes or to share something of value. And for either of those, it's it's sharing something that people are willing to pay for. And I knew that if I did a podcast on baby loss, it would be somewhat different because it's not really a topic that I feel people are going to listen to week after week, month after month, year after year in the same way that, for example, I listen to podcasts on writing and book marketing because that's that's what I do and you need to keep up with things like trends and what's happening now. But this I felt, and I may be wrong, I don't know, you're the listeners, so you can tell me, but I felt it would be more something that people dipped in and out of, or perhaps just needed for a very short part of their life. And that might be another reason why it hasn't really been done, because it's Uh, Let's face it, talking about dead babies isn't really a commercially viable topic for a podcast. (laughs) Anyway, and I think saying that, it was perhaps two or three weeks after Sky's death that I decided that I was going to do a podcast on this topic, that I was going to help other people share their stories and raise awareness of the impact of baby loss, because I didn't really know much about it. I had a very, I mean, I thought beforehand I had a good awareness, but, you know, the more you get into this world, the more you actually understand how common it is and and also how diverse people's experiences are. So I decided that I was going to do this thing, and that would be a way of remembering Sky, a way of honouring her and her legacy, really. It then took me about eight months to get to the point of launching it, which is a long time. (laughs) And it was a lot, a lot longer than I wanted it to be. And I think that was for a couple of reasons. I think firstly, you know, I had to go through my own grief journey, which I talked about earlier in this episode. And it was, it was quite long and hard. And there was a lot of time when I wasn't really able to do anything at all. I then did want some time to reflect and decide what I wanted the podcast to focus on because I wanted to share people's stories and talk about grief and loss but I also really wanted there to be a positive side to it to show the world that there is beauty and love in our stories as well as sadness and that while our children may have died they also lived if only for a short while. And it was at the Baby Loss Our Live event in Leeds in September that I finally decided on my theme, Baby Loss, Legacy and Learning to Live Again. At that event, the panel talked about legacy and that it doesn't have to mean raising thousands of pounds for charity or even setting up your own charity, although many people have done this. Legacy can be the small things you do to remember your baby. And I've tried to take the same approach with the podcast, interviewing guests whose losses were both recent and further in the past. 
and who've chosen to celebrate their babies in different ways. And I want to to showcase, my aim was to showcase as many experiences as possible. And I still have a long way to go in this, not just in terms of the experiences I share and the diversity of that, but the diversity of guests on the show. And I'm very conscious that I have a lot of work still to do on that. But it is, it's a work in progress. And like everything, you know, it's slow steps a lot of the time. And I think still from that event in September, you know, it then took me, what, another four or five months to launch it. And part of that was... I think overcoming some internal resistance I had about whether I could do it or not and whether I could commit to it. And part of it was finding those initial guests, raising awareness, finding people who are willing to talk to me, particularly in the lead up to Christmas, which is a really difficult time of year for a lot of us. And then there's the whole production side of things. Although I've co-hosted a podcast before, I haven't um done run my own one so you know I had to research the software to use the programs the packages and the technical side of things and yeah I definitely underestimated how long it takes (laughs) to produce each of these shows (laughs) so yeah it's been it's been a really long journey and yeah I I think my main aim with it was that I wanted to help people share their stories and I wanted to help people who were bereaved feel less alone and perhaps have some hope on this journey. And I think if I've managed to do that, then it is a success and hopefully it will continue for a long time. I can keep running it and keep sharing more diverse stories. But while this podcast is perhaps I don't know, Sky's main legacy. There are other things we've done, smaller, subtler things. We took part in Advent to Remember in the lead up to Christmas. And that, if you haven't heard of that, it's um, it's kind of an initiative, I think, which was started by Jess at the Legacy of Leo. And it can be done. It's not specific to baby loss. I think it's for anyone who's struggling with grief around that Christmas period. And on every day of Advent, you do something to remember your baby. So it might be a random act of kindness. It might be a donation to charity. It might be something that someone else does on your behalf. It could be just lighting a candle and thinking about your baby. Anything really. And, you know, we we did a variety of things from um, hanging candy canes on trees to going to a carol service and and singing carols and I think it helped it helped try to make that lead up to Christmas a bit of a a happier time I think my husband and I are also raising money for Tommy's and we ran a marathon well he did a marathon I did a half marathon (laughs) in February And my husband's hoping to undertake a crazy challenge at the end of next month, which is COVID dependent because it depends if we can travel um, with Carl, who is my podcast guest in a few weeks. But there are also the small things we do, writing her name in the sand, lighting her candle, wondering what she would be doing now. Perhaps one of the things that struck me most when I've been doing these interviews is how my guests have spoken of the legacy that their child has left on them. Losing a child changes you, and often that can be for the better. I spoke earlier about what grief has taught me, but this is what Skye has taught me. She's taught me to be more compassionate and understanding. I see now that everyone has challenges they go through, and everyone is running their own race, even though those challenges aren't always visible or spoken about and while there are times I still struggle with this and struggle to perhaps sympathize with certain challenges that my friends or the people might have uh, particularly when I am struggling and deep in my own grief I do think that overall I've become more empathetic and I think yeah just able and trying to see that really everyone is doing their best 
on a daily basis. And we always feel that our best isn't good enough, but you know what? It's all we can do. She's also taught me to be kinder to myself. And I am a very slow to learn pupil, I think, (laughs) particularly on this score, because I do find it hard. And it is hard to change the habits and beliefs of a lifetime. But she's inspired me to learn more about myself and figure out the life I want to lead going forward. And that's a journey. And, you know, particularly in the last five or six months, I found that just because you decide you want something and, you know, you want to achieve this particular thing or you want your life to look a certain way, that doesn't mean that things will fall into place that allow you to do that. Um, And I'm sure for many people, the recent coronavirus pandemic has been a prime example of that when, you know, you think you're going in a certain directional trajectory and then suddenly this big massive thing comes in your way and you have to adapt to it but life like grief is a journey and one year in honestly it sometimes feels like I'm only just setting foot on that road part seven one year on Recently, I was asked to write a short piece for a book on baby loss. I chose to write the letter I wish I'd been able to give myself a year ago in the weeks following Skye's death. A letter of reassurance from my future self. So this last segment of the show is for those of you listening who are recently bereaved, who are wondering what happens now, who are wondering if there really is life after loss and what it looks like. And while all our experiences are unique and different, I hope that perhaps it helps some of you listening to hear this story. I see you, bereaved mother. I see you lying there, shell-socked and numb, having just given birth to your dead baby. I see you struggling to breathe, struggling to feel, struggling to know what life is going to be like. Let me tell you this straight up. The next year will be the hardest of your life. You will shed more tears than you thought possible. You will hit the lowest point of your life and find yourself in the deepest, darkest, blackest hole. There will be times you wonder if you can survive this. There will be times you wonder if you want to survive this. You will feel rage, a deep, burning, uncontrollable anger at the world, at fate, at yourself, You will feel envy, jealousy, despair and fear. You will hurt inside, a physical pain, and you will curl up and embrace it while begging for it to go away. There will be times you lie on the sofa, hugging your daughter's ashes, trying to pretend that they are a living, breathing baby. There will be times you lie on the floor, unable to get up as the weight in your chest drags you down. So what hope can I offer? Just this. There is no end to the darkness, but slowly light will come back into your life. You will learn to breathe again. You will learn to live again. You will learn to hope again. They say that motherhood changes you, and it does, in ways you could never imagine. The hardship and pain you suffer will cause you to look inside yourself and take the first step on a long journey of discovery. You will learn so much about yourself in this first year, your fears, your dreams, your strengths, your weaknesses. You are a phoenix, and you will rise from the ashes of life that surround you. This rising will take longer than a day, a week, a month. There won't be a time when you suddenly turn around and think, I am whole again. A small part of you will always feel incomplete. But you will learn to embrace that void inside you for what it is, the child you hold in your heart. And even though the grief may crash over you like a wave pounding the sand, driving you to your knees, you'll be ready for it and embrace it because it is not something bad to be choked back or pushed down, but a manifestation of a wild, everlasting, beautiful love a love that will last as long as you live. After death comes new life. Out of pain and heartbreak comes strength. 
Strength does not lie in being stoic. It is not putting on a brave face and pretending to the world that everything is okay while deep inside you battle to keep down the feelings that swirl in your belly and claw at your throat. Strength is accepting these feelings, seeking to understand them and the deeper feelings that lie beneath them, then learning to let go of them. One year on, I am still on this road of discovery. Some days are harder than others. I am not strong yet, but I am stronger. It is still hard for me to think of her and be happy rather than sad. But that's okay. Grief is love, and I choose love over emptiness. So, when the days are at their darkest, cling to hope. You will survive. You will learn to live again. And you will always be a mother. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.